Hello, it's Friday the 16th of December and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-ho. Memorial ceremonies were held across the country to honour the victims of the Itaewon crowd crush in October. We'll have more on this story in our news briefing shortly. South Korea's first lunar orbiter, Tanuri, is set to enter the moon's orbit on Saturday after its four-month journey from Earth. We'll discuss what comes next for our in-depth today. And then for Movie Spotlight, we discuss one of the movie events of the year, the Avatar sequel, as well as an Indonesian drama that's been seeing success on the festival circuit. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Today marks the 49th day following the Itaewon crowd crush, a significant milestone in Buddhist Buddhist tradition. And memorial services were held across the country today to remember the victims. However, there have also been concerning reports that since the tragic incident, officials from the Yongsan district office have been changing their cell phones, sparking concerns that they are attempting to destroy evidence. For more on this story and the rest of the day's headlines, we have a new contributor on the show today. Editor Emma Sparks is here with us now. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, unfortunately, we welcome you with a very sombre story today. Can you explain a little more about these memorials today? Uh, Yes, there are memorial services throughout the country that have been planned for today in honour of the 158 people who lost their lives as a result of the tragic crowd crush in October. The 49th day following a death is the last day of mourning according to the Buddhist tradition and prayers are held in hopes of helping the deceased be reborn into a better world. The memorial service this morning held by the Joge Order of Korean Buddhism at the Joge Temple in Central Seoul drew hundreds of mourners and the service began with the striking of a bell 158 times in honour of each victim. Also planned for today is a service conducted by the bereaved families and civic groups, which started at 6pm near the site of the tragedy. The victims' families are planning to march towards the presidential office, calling for a thorough investigation into the truth and for the parties responsible to be held to account. Yes, and the investigation into the Yongsan district office officials has run into some difficulties as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that as well? Uh, several officials from the Yongsan District Office, which is in charge of the Itaewon area, have claimed to have lost or have changed their phones since the incident took place. In the case of Park Hee-young, head of the Yongsan District Office, she replaced her Samsung Galaxy phone with a new iPhone on November 5th, which is one week after the crowd crush. And another Yongsan district official in charge of disaster safety also reportedly purchased a new phone claiming he dropped the previous one in the toilet. So these instances have led police to raise concerns that they believe these changing of phones could be an attempt to destroy related evidence. Yes, well, the special police investigation is continuing and a parliamentary investigation is pending as well. So we'll see what they do uncover moving forward. Moving on, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution on Thursday condemning human rights violations by North Korea and called for efforts to address the issue. Can you tell us more? 
Yeah, the resolution was passed by consensus without a vote, making it the 18th of its kind since 2005 and the first to be co-sponsored by South Korea in four years. The resolution was tabled by the European Union and focuses on concerns over dire human rights conditions in the North. Expressing concerns over what was referred to as the illegal detention, torture and execution of foreign nationals, this year's resolution added calls for North Korea to release all information pertaining to foreign nationals subjected to human rights violations by the regime. This is the 18th consecutive year of an adoption of such a resolution, with the North Korean diplomats at the meeting claiming it was politically motivated. So permanent resolution representative to the UN, Kim Song, claimed that the resolution was nothing but the product of a hostile policy of the United States and its followers against North Korea, claiming that the so-called human rights violations mentioned in the draft resolution cannot exist within North Korea, where a people-first principle is fully embodied in all spheres of social life. The resolution also urged the UN Security Council to consider referring North Korea to the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity. Meanwhile, Rafael Grossi, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or the IAEA, said the organization is prepared to take on a greater role in resolving the North Korean nuclear issue. So what has he suggested for this? Uh, Speaking to South Korean media outlets in Seoul on Friday... Well, today, uh, Grossi said that opening communication channels is essential in resolving the nuclear stalemate, and he believes that the IAEA can play a constructive role in the process. He met with President Yoon Suk Yeol and administration officials to discuss the North's nuclear program on his first visit to Korea. Uh, Grossi said that there has been a very intensive effort to separate and enrich nuclear material by Pyongyang and also mentioned that activities continue at the North's Yongbyon nuclear facilities. And what did uh, President Yun have to say during these discussions? Uh, During the meeting at the presidential office, the president asked for the IAEA's participation in efforts to denuclearize North Korea through strengthened monitoring and inspection readiness posture regarding Pyongyang's nuclear activities. According to the presidential office, the IAEA director pledged that his agency will do its best to deter the North's nuclear program and safeguard the global non-proliferation regime. Let's continue on to other headlines now. The impasse between the rival political parties over next year's budget bill. Can you update us on this situation? Yes, the deadlock has continued into today. One day past the Thursday deadline put forth by the National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo, the ruling People Power Party, or PPP, earlier rejected the Speaker's arbitration proposal to reduce the maximum corporate taxation rate by one percentage point which is short of the ruling camp's call for a three percentage point cut. The main opposition Democratic Party, or DP, had accepted this suggestion. Uh, The Speaker also suggested the use of reserve funds to operate a unit overseeing the police under the Interior Ministry, as well as personnel information management team under the Justice Ministry. At the party meeting on Friday, PPP floor leader... Ju Ho-young said that the reduction in corporate taxes would be insufficient in supporting the Yoon Suk-yeol administration's economic revitalization policies. 
The ruling party also refused to accept the reserve fund proposal, claiming that the speaker has sided with the DP. And what has the DP, what has the DP leader said in response to this? Uh, DP leader Lee Jae-myung has in return accused the ruling party of neglecting its duties in state affairs in favour of defending the interests of conglomerates and the super-rich. The two sides are said to be continuing discussions by phone, but negotiations are expected to go past this weekend. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Emma, thank you for those updates. Thank you. South Korea's first-ever lunar orbiter, Tanuri, began its long journey to the moon back in August when it was launched into space on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. And now, after four months, it's almost there. On Saturday, Tanuri will begin its first lunar orbit insertion, or LOI, manoeuvre to enter the moon's orbit. To update us on Tanuri's progress and what comes next, we're joined on the line now by Professor An Jae-myung from the Department of Aerospace Engineering at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, or KAIST for short. Professor An, it's good to have you back. Hello, jang Nice to meet you again. Yes, we spoke to you last just before Tanuri's launch, and now here we are. It uh, has almost reached the moon, and as you said, it's scheduled to enter the moon's orbit on Saturday. It's taken four yep. months to get there. Can you give us a, a brief summary of Tanuri's journey so far? Sure. So as you mentioned, Falcon 9, a rocket operated by SpaceX, put Danuri into a lunar transfer orbit. Uh, Danuri first flew uh, nearby the Sun-Earth Lagrange point, uh, which is approximately 1.5 million kilometers far from the Earth. Then Danuri changed its direction to approach to the moon. So currently, as you mentioned, we are waiting for the, the lunar orbit insertion bond. Uh, called as LOI bond. So it would be the last challenge that we have to overcome before arriving at the moon. During its pathway to the moon, Danuri successfully completed the full trajectory correction maneuver called TCM, which has small propulsion burns to put the spacecraft on the right trajectory. In August, uh, Danuri took a picture of the Earth and moon together in one screen using Lunar Terrain Imager, uh, LUTI, which is a scientific payload developed by Korea Aerospace Research Institute. Also in October, uh, Danuri broadcasted a music video of the BTS, uh, the Dynamite, uh, using Space Internet, uh, which is a payload developed by Electronics and Telecommunication Research Institute at Duri. So uh, here is my summary for Danuri's journey. So far, everything went very smooth without any serious issue. Indeed. So it's taken a photo, listened to some uh, BTS music. Yeah. It sounds like it's had a good journey so far. Uh, yeah. But as we said, it's been a long journey. Uh, for those who know their space exploration history, they'll know that the NASA Apollo missions only took four days to reach the moon. So our mm-hmm. listeners may be wondering why it's taken so long for Tanuri to get to the moon. Uh, but Professor, I understand it's because Tanuri took a roundabout route rather than a straight yeah. path understand yeah. that the cumulative distance is 6 million kilometers, which is uh, 
15 times the actual distance yeah, from yeah. the Earth to the Moon. Why did it take such a detour? So, yeah, there are several different trajectory options for a lunar mission like Danuri, such as the, the direct insertion, which was uh, used by the Apollo program, and phase transfer and ballistic lunar uh, transfer. Among these options, uh, we usually have the, the trade-off relationship between the fuel efficiency and transfer time, meaning a trajectory that consumes less fuel usually takes longer. Mm. The trajectory used by Danuri uh, is the cold as the ballistic lunar transfer, DLT. Uh, that is a long and winding route to the moon, uh, like the Beetle-Song type, right? But it is also an energy-efficient one. As I mentioned, that the BLT sent Danuri to a position far from the Earth, the Sun, Earth, Lagrange point one. There, the gravity of the Sun affects its motion significantly and makes a very complex path. Compared to the direct insertion or phase transfer trajectories, it is known that the BLT can save up to 25% of the fuel used to make an orbit at the moon. Mm. And because the speed reduction required at the arrival to the moon is smaller. So although the BLT takes long time for the lunar transfer, which is four months, we can use the saved fuel to extend the mission period in the lunar orbit up to one year. Right, so it's all to conserve fuel and energy. Uh, I guess there's no rush, but I imagine it's been a long four months for the uh, scientists right, yeah. involved in the project. Thankfully, though, as you said, it's all gone smoothly so far. Yeah. So now I understand that it enters a tricky phase, Professor. Tanuri is going to try and enter the moon's orbit. Yeah. In layman's terms, could you tell us how that will happen? Can you walk us through the process? So, yeah, so it, actually, it's very difficult to explain the complex procedure in an easy way, but <laughs> I, I will try. Sure. So, Danuri approaches close to the moon, approximately 100 kilometer altitude, around 3 a.m. tomorrow. At the time, the speed of the Danuri relative to the moon is very fast. And if we don't do anything, Danuri will pass by the moon because the, the speed is too high. And what we do tomorrow is to reduce the speed of Danuri so that it can be captured by the moon's gravity and stay around the moon instead of passing by the moon. So we will fire an engine in an opposite direction of Danuri's movement or conduct a retroburn to reduce the speed of the Danuri. And it is known that the amount of speed reduction that Danuri has to make by firing the engine tomorrow is approximately 500 kilometers per hour. And this uh, reduction in speed will put Danuri in an elliptic lunar orbit. Then we conduct additional uh, retroburns four more times to change the elliptic orbit to a circular lunar orbit with 100 kilometers of the altitude. And this is the Danuri's final mission orbit. Well, I think you've explained it very clearly. Uh, so we need to fire uh, engines, essentially, to slow the orbiter down and enter yes. the moon's orbit. And I think we are expecting a five LOI burn manoeuvres uh, in yep. all, if it all goes to plan. Uh, but yep. why is this manoeuvre tricky? What are some of the risks that Danuri could face when entering the moon's orbit? 
Yeah, so the, the most critical risk would be the error in the direction or the magnitude of the retroburn. So I mentioned that the first retroburn should reduce the speed of the dangri by 500 km per hour. If the engine does not work or the speed reduction is not sufficient, dangri will pass by the moon. And if the dangri passes by the moon, depending on the situation, we might be able to try to enter the lunar orbit later. But, however, it will cost large additional time and propellant as well. And mm. the scientific mission at the moon may not be the conducted as planned. If the speed reduction is too high, then Danuri will impact on the surface of the moon instead of making an orbit. And it is particularly difficult because Danuri is very far from the Earth, something like 380,000 kilometers from the Earth, a distance that can make the delay between the sending and receiving of the command. Mm. So, yeah, once the bond for the lunar orbit insertion is completed, the engineers will calculate the orbit of the Danuri based on observations, and this is a procedure called as the orbit determination, OD. And after this procedure, uh, we can know if the lunar orbit insertion is successful or not. I hope that the results will be available around December 19. Okay, so hopefully we'll know uh, sometime early next week whether it has been a success or not, but uh, it seems like everything needs to go just right, it seems, so That's that we right, don't yeah. fly yeah. past the moon or crash into it or waste too much, too much fuel. This is going That's to be right. a, a critical time. How right. confident are you that Tanuri will successfully enter the moon's orbit? So, well, as you mentioned, that Tanuri's journey has been successful so far, uh, but tomorrow's lunar insertion bond is very challenging. So we all know that the uncertainty is everywhere. And things can sometimes go wrong, but however, I am kind of the on an optimistic side. The optimism comes from my belief on our engineers who have mm. been participating in the design, manufacturing, testing, and operation of Danuri. So I sincerely wish that tomorrow's bond will be successful with my fingers crossed. Indeed, we're all certainly hoping that it goes smoothly uh, so that it can start actually fulfilling its uh, main mission. So yep. what's on the agenda for Tanuri if it does successfully enter the moon's orbit? I understand that it will carry out various missions for almost a year from January. Can you briefly walk us through those missions? Okay, so after it enters the moon's orbit, the Tanuri will conduct science missions for about uh, one year. And Danuri carries six science payloads, which are uh, lunar terrain imager, LUTI, developed by KARI, Korea Aerospace Research Institute, wide-angle parametric camera, POLCAM, which is developed by Korea Astronomy and Space Science Institute, KASI, magnetometer, uh, which is developed by Korea Institute of the Steel Science and Mineral Resources, gamma-ray spectrometer, uh, which is developed by Gyeonghee University, uh, disruption tolerant network experiment payload, uh, which is a space internet uh, developed by Electronics and Telecommunication Research Institute, and highly sensitive camera shadow cam uh, that is uh, from USA, so Arizona State University. So, uh, as I mentioned, that the high resolution camera LUTI took the picture of the lunar surface. 
that can be the kind of candidate site for future lunar lander missions. And mm. we know that actually he already sent us the image of the Earth and Moon together, in a single shot. The shadow cam from uh, Arizona State University will uh, explore the, the permanently shadowed regions of the lunar pools, helping to figure out the presence of ice deposits on the moon's surface. Mm. And also other payload will also conduct very challenging missions that can contribute Right, so it sounds like it's going to be busy. That's a lot it's going to do, but it's also uh, preparing for possible future lunar landing missions, which yep. sounds incredibly exciting as well. So it's yep. already been an incredible achievement by uh, Korea's space program, getting the space vehicle all the way to the moon without any major issues so far. So I feel that uh, Korea scientists have learned quite a lot already, but. If it all goes well, if it all is successfully done, how meaningful and significant would it be for South Korea's space program, Professor? So if the, the, we succeed in the mission, uh, Korea becomes the, the seventh country uh, to, success, uh, to succeed in the lunar mission. But uh, this is not the end. So Danuri is the, the first step to uh, Korea, uh, Korean kind of space exploration program. So... After this mission, we will explore the moon again, uh, kind of the lunar lander, and also the asteroid and the Mars and maybe beyond. So I think that this is just a starting point for our ambitious plans. And uh, I'd like to wish that the Danuri can be the great kind of starting point of our mm. kind of ambitious plan for future exploration missions. Indeed, in fact, President Yoon Sang-yeol revealed last month that the plan is to have a space vehicle land on the moon by 2032 and Mars by 2045 as well, and that an aerospace agency will be established next year. So there are uh, grand ambitions for the Korean space program. But first, uh, let's hope this next stage with Tanuri goes well. As you said, Professor, we're all keeping our fingers crossed uh, yeah. Well, we've been speaking to Professor An Jae-myung from KAIST. Professor, thank you for your time today, and hopefully we'll get to speak to you again soon with uh, more good news. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 0.95 points, or 0.04% on Friday, closing the week at 2,360.02. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 5.27 points, or 0.73%, to close the day at 717.41. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 2.31 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,305.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment, looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee joining us in the studio. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jano. It's always good to see you. OK, so what topics do you have for us today? OK, so first we'll talk about who has reportedly become the new head of the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency. We'll also find out what happened to hundreds of passengers that were trapped on a subway train in Seoul. And finally, we'll have confirmation that South Korea is set to compete in the Asia Professional Baseball Championship next year. 
Okay, let's start with that first story then. It looks like we might have a new head of the KDCA soon. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so President Yoon Seok-yeol has reportedly named the Institute Pasteur Korea CEO Ji Yong-mi as the new head of the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, or KDCA. According to KBS, the presidential spokesperson's office revealed the president's decision on Friday. Now, the move comes as KDCA commissioner Baek Yong-nan tendered her resignation after assuming the post some seven months ago. Right, so the KDCA is the government body that has essentially headed the nation's response to the COVID-19 pandemic over Mm -hmm. the last three years. So it is a very important agency. Uh, Before we find out more about uh, the new head, Ji Young-mi, we think the new head, Ji Young-mi, can you tell us first about why uh, Peck stepped down so soon, just after seven months? Right, so Beck had been facing calls to step down from the opposition camp, which cited that bio and pharmaceutical-related stocks that she held uh, posed a conflict of interest. Now, following that controversy, Beck got rid of all those stocks. She again made headlines when her younger brother was found to have specified that he is Beck's sibling when applying to become an outside director of a COSDAQ-listed company that provides COVID-19 test kits. Right, so we cannot say that uh, Peck stepped down uh, specifically because of these mm-hmm. reasons, but that uh, is the background of uh, what has been going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now about uh, Chi, the new head. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only has she been the CEO of Institute Pasteur Korea, one of the leading institutes on infectious diseases, mm-hmm. understand that she's on the World Health Organization's International Health Regulations Emergency Committee for the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Yes, that's correct. So she has previously headed key departments on infectious diseases at the National Health Institute and served as special representative for health diplomacy for the Korea Foundation. She's also married to Yonsei University Law School professor Lee Cho-ru, who is a longtime friend of President Yoon, having attended the same high school and university as the president. Okay, so there is a connection to the president there as well. We'll see if uh, that causes any controversy, potentially, Mm. but uh, she certainly seems to have the necessary qualifications for the position anyway. Yes. Uh, We wait to see an official appointment announcement soon. Let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Yes, so last night, some 500 passengers were left trapped on a subway train after it broke down over the Han River in Seoul. Now, according to the Korea Railroad Corporation, or CoRail, a subway train that was headed to Norangjin Station from Yongsan Station on Line 1 suddenly stopped on the Han River Railroad Bridge due to a malfunction a little before 8pm. Now, with the train unable to move, 50 subway and railroad trains headed to Chonan in South Chungcheong province and Incheon suffered delays between 10 to 15 minutes in their operations. KTX bullet trains saw normal operations. So how long were the passengers trapped in the train for? For roughly two hours. Now, aside from being stuck in the train, the passengers had to suffer cold temperatures as the heating didn't work properly amid freezing weather. Now, Corral sent another train at around 10pm and towed the stall train to the Norangjin station. Wow, two hours is a long time indeed. Uh, Was anyone hurt during this incident? So fortunately, no one was hurt, but many passengers complained that the train operator had failed to properly respond to the incident. One passenger said that there was no apology or explanation provided. Now, Corral will try to find out why the subway train malfunctioned after moving uh, moving it to the railway depot in Guro District for inspection. The vehicle in question is said to be a relatively new electric train that was introduced in 2016.
Yes, I'm sure it must have been incredibly frustrating and uncomfortable mm. for the passengers. It is very rare for such a major malfunctions to happen on Korean subways. Mm. Hopefully, the authorities will figure out what went wrong and make sure that it doesn't happen again. Let's uh, move on to our final story for today. What else has been trending? Right, so South Korea will compete in the Asia Professional Baseball Championship, or APBC, which will kick off next November for the first time in six years. Now, the Korea Baseball Organization, or KBO, announced on Friday that it will send a 26-member team to the international tournament that will run from November 16th to 19th at the Tokyo Dome in Japan. Sanctioned by the World Baseball Softball uh, Court, Confederation, the APBC is a competition between South Korea, Japan, Chinese Taipei, and Australia. The teams consist of players under the age of 24. Right, so the APBC is taking place for the first time in six years. Mm. And actually, that was when this competition was first established, right, mm. in 2017. Yeah, that's correct. So next year would mark only the second time for the championship to be held. Initially, the KBO, Nippon Professional Baseball, and the Chinese Professional Baseball League had planned to hold the APBC every four years when they jointly launched the tournament. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, they had to postpone the second competition. The three baseball organizations created the tournament to provide young players the opportunity to play in international matches and to instill them, uh, instill in them the pride of representing their country while also discovering new talents. How had uh, South Korea fared in the first tournament in 2017? Though they managed to make it to the finals, uh, Team Korea did lose to Japan 0-7. Now, take note that some of the South Korean players who competed in that event went on to play for the nation's top teams and Major League Baseball. Notable examples include Kim Ha-sung, who serves as a shortstop for the San Diego Padres, and Lee Jong-hoo, who is an outfielder for the Kyum Heroes in the KBO. Right, so maybe we'll see some new stars emerge from the competition next year as well. We'll wrap it up there for Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Next up, it's our regular Friday feature movie spotlight, reviewing the latest cinematic releases at the Korean box office and online. And as usual, we welcome our film critics. First, we have Jason Beshevace to my right, as usual. Jason, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jenny. And opposite him to my left, we have Darcy Paquette as well. Darcy, hello to you too. It's great to see you. Yeah, great to be here. Okay, so we start with one of the biggest films of the year, of recent years, in fact, opened... It opened in theatres globally this week with director James Cameron revisiting the world of Avatar 13 years after releasing the original film back in 2009. It's called Avatar The Way of Water, or Avatar Muregil in Korean. It reportedly cost more than $350 million to make. Unsurprisingly, it opened at the top of the box office here on Wednesday. So, Jason, can you tell us more? Sure. So, James Cameron, um, he's obviously very well known, has a very uh, impressive resume. He doesn't make films very often, but mm. when he does, he, he makes these gargantuan box office hits. Mm. Uh, credits, he, credits include Terminator 1 and, of course, 2, a <laughs> uh, very culturally significant film. Aliens as well, The Abyss, True Lies, you know, remember that film? 
rather problematic film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Titanic, <laughs> um, and uh, of course the original Avatar. And sure. here we are with the Avatar sequel. And the, the first film generated, well, actually, it cost $2.9 billion this year because they re released it. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was released at the end of 2009. Right, it grossed $2.9 million. So, I mean, it, it, it's staggering. You can never underestimate uh, James Cameron, you know, t- uh, Titanic. There are all these kind of horror stories about, you know, what's he doing in Mexico shooting his movie? And it turns out to be then the most successful film and then came back with Avatar. Mm. So, yeah, here we are with a sequel. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners will be aware of uh, Pandora, um, this this uh, faraway uh, world. Um, and uh, so Cameron introduced us to, you know, Pandora in the original film, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, a group of ex-Marines have been sent from Earth to colonise this, this world, which has these, you know, very complex and very beautiful ecosystems. Uh, and so in the original movie, ex-Marine Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, was kind of placed, you know, through technology inside the body of one of the Pandora's uh, natives, mm. um, a blue-skinned species called the Navi. And uh, Sully, um, you know, subsequently abandoned the mission and bonded with, with Navi and falling in love. Um, and uh, with with this uh, with Neytiri uh, played by Zoe Zaldana, right? And so here we are with Av- Avatar two. Um, Sully, uh, along with his his other half, now have four children. Uh, one magnificently played by the Signor, uh, Signori, excuse me, uh, Sigourney Weaver. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, she, I mean, she's playing someone that's a lot, lot younger. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're basically forced to flee their mountainous rainforest uh, when a group of Marines come back seeking revenge on Sully. And uh, they take refuge in this underwater world. Uh, and, uh, yeah, no, it's it's just... I say underwater, but it's kind of yeah, it's sure. partly underwater. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's magnificent. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver, of course, playing a different character, playing a, a child uh, yeah. in this, uh, the the child of uh, Sally and Neytiri. So different from the first film, but she's back sure. So yeah, hence somehow, the, the age you know, difference. Yes, that I was, sure. That I was so there's to, uh, yeah. quite a lot of story there already, a lot of world building. So Darcy, with that in mind, do you think we need to have seen the original film to follow this new story? I don't think so. I. I saw the original film back in 2009, and mm. I, I do remember some things from the film. I mean, mostly the floating pieces of fluff in the air that, in 3D, look, you know, gave it such three dimensionality. <laughs> but um, I think the story is simple enough that you can just kind of jump in and follow it. And um, you know, what's new? I don't know. I mean, it, it feels different from the original film, and it kind of goes a bit further. I guess the thing to um, yeah, I mean, Sully is now sort of completely Navi. He's kind of, you know, put uh, his human <laughs> body and life behind him. Mm. Uh, and so he's completely integrated. And uh, if you understand that, and basically you can just kind of follow his family as they sure. do. Sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Cameroon doesn't make these like nolan-esque complex narratives <laughs> no. right you know he is he is very commercial i mean just look at you know titanic um true lies <laughs> aliens you know these films they have a very simple plot you know he, he's not seeking to 
um, intellectually stimulate his audiences like some other filmmakers do. Sure. And as he's been criticised for it. Mm. Um, but there's a reason why his films perform so well. And that, partly that's because he makes these stories so accessible, but also because he's just, he's just an incredible technician. You know, he... Um, he's very much involved in all areas of the filmmaking. Again, that has made him unpopular. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, he, he's, when it comes to technology, uh, he, he's able to do something consistently that other filmmakers are not able to. So he puts on its spectacle, essentially, sure. uh, with quite a simple story. So we perhaps don't need to know the first one to enjoy the second one. The question is, Jason, did you enjoy it? I did. Um, I actually watched the rewatched the original film this week, um, and uh, I was like, "Yes, this film isn't good." Uh, I remember watching it twice in the cinema. <laughs> Why I saw it twice, I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, I just I was not overwhelmed by it at all, and a mm. uh, bit of a drag. And, and the visuals on my computer were just, you know, not particularly great. Um, and then so I came, I went in with pretty low expectations, and I was blown away i i generally i think i think this film visually it's just it's truly truly remarkable uh the attention to detail um he's just created this world that is is, is unlike anything i've ever seen before mm. i mean with marvel films you, you kind of get i mean it's a cg cgi avalanche but you kind of get desensitized to it all, right? Mm. But this this is different. Okay. Um, and the way he's able to get, you know, these incredible performances out of his cast whilst also, you know, obviously you in, incorporating a lot of visual effects. Um, but also I think what stood out for me is the, the emotional arc of the film. So the film, oh, okay. and I, that's why I think it will play really well to Korean audiences because, you know, melodrama is so important mm. here. And so this film focuses <laughs> on this family and focuses, you know, on their bonding. Sure. Um, and it just has a really powerful story at the centre of it. It's not complicated. <laughs> um, and But, you know, I was really, as a parent, I was really drawn into that. And that was something I wasn't expecting. Interesting. So, Darcy, what did you make of it? Did it work for you on that level as well? I, I mean, the critical response has been rather mixed. Some people were blown away like uh, like Jason was, but uh, others were far more uh, critical of it. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, it has been really interesting to see the critical response, and I, I also wasn't expecting to like it. I'm not a huge fan of the original. Uh, and, I mean, like a lot of critics, I don't really like James Cameron because he's such an unlikable, arrogant personality that you kind of, you know, as a film critic, you just kind of want to sharpen your knives when he comes out with a new film. Uh, but I have to admit, you know, I sat in front of the film for, for three hours and however many minutes, and uh, it yeah, just a long film. Really, it really pulled me into it. Um, I think that, you know, James Cameron began his career in production design, and I think that's kind of a really important aspect of his filmmaking. And if you think about kind of blockbuster cinema, it's partly about storytelling, but, um, you know, the films that really feel big and engaging are the ones that create a certain world mm. that pull you in. That, um, Yeah, I mean, Jason makes a good point in comparing this to Marvel films because Marvel films, too, create their own world, but they don't have the detail or um, the, yeah, the texture of <laughs> of this and so sure and it's based on the real world the earth basically whereas yeah here he's creating a completely new world yeah so you could argue that the film is actually quite political uh because mm, clearly okay. he has a big 
um, interest in in the ocean and that that whole ecosystem. Mm. Um, and you know, you watch this film and, and you you do want to jump in the ocean and protect it. Mm. And so, in that sense, it it is political. Um, and you he, want to he shoot the to, humans? Yeah, <laughs> get those humans. Yeah, get, get the humans out and protect 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 our protect our precious planet. So sure. um, okay. Um, so so yeah. yeah I completely agree with Darcy. Uh, there, there is... Uh, there, so rather there... anti-human film, but still uh, two <laughs> thumbs up from both our critics. Sure. Uh, perhaps a surprise, but it does seem to have worked on a critical level and perhaps we'll see whether it makes a, a box office smash as well. I'm sure it will. Whether oh, it'll be yeah. as big as $2.9 billion, though, uh, is another question. Well, it has to. It has to make money because it it's so expensive. Apparently, sure. it was, it, Cameron was saying it, it has to be like the third or fourth most successful film ever for it to break even. <laughs> sure. And it also, uh, there's Avatar 3, 4 uh, f- and 5, I believe, coming as well in the future. So, yes, uh, I'm sure he'll be... Uh, wanting to make sure that it's a success. Uh, we have to move on, because yes. there is another film that we want to talk about. Uh, <laughs> there are very few other releases uh, this week, given the competition provided by Avatar. Uh, but we do have a notable foreign release from Indonesia, which premiered at the Berlin Film Festival back in February. It's from the up-and-coming director Camilla Andini, and it's called Before, Now and Then, and the Korean title is simply Nana, after the protagonist in the film. Uh, it won a Berlin Award for Best Supporting Performance and also recently carried home the Grand Prize at the Asia-Pacific Screen Awards as well. So Darcy, can you briefly set up for us? Yeah, it's set in Indonesia in the 1960s, which were a time when, I mean, the nation was kind of finding itself. You know, it only gained its independence from the Netherlands uh, at the end of the 1940s. Uh, But it was also a time of violent conflict due to these anti-communist purges. And so viewers who have seen Joshua Oppenheimer's really famous 2012 documentary, The Act of Killing, will kind of know the backdrop. Uh, you know, but the, the violence is kind of in the background in this film, and it focuses on a, a woman named Nana. Uh, she's married to a wealthy man, a uh, Sundanese man. And we learn in flashbacks that uh, Nana had to flee her home village after hearing that her father and husband were killed. Um, you know, in the present day, she... in some ways leads kind of a luxurious life, but she's not fully accepted in her community. Uh, She discovers that her husband is being unfaithful. Mm. Uh, She's trying to cope with her own feelings of sort of alienation or dissatisfaction. Uh, She gets to know her husband's mistress, and then the two of them unexpectedly become close as well. So Jason, what do you think of the film? I know some critics have compared it to uh, the Hong Kong classic In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai. Yeah, for a few reasons, uh, not least the music. Um, composer Ricky Leonardi, uh, who just, I mean, it's just a terrific um, collection of, of, of music. Uh, so all pop songs, strings, native Indonesian uh, music. Uh, and the music is almost throughout the whole narrative, actually. Um, and it just creates this really intriguing move right from the beginning of the film right to the end and it's so beautifully shot yeah, um I, it's I, really I, nice <laughs> I, I i i was watching it on my computer i was like this is not the best place to watch this movie because <laughs> uh, it's 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 so um it's, it really moved me it's so endearing and you've got these two kind of central female characters and the male characters in the film you they barely get a look in actually which is a really i think one of its key strengths mm. because the patriarchy is 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 clearly there mm. Um, and, and 
it was just a really interesting approach to just follow it from their perspective and you see these kind of relationships develop you, you see the conflicts develop as well but mm. um it's it's quite it's quite subtle and yet also really really powerful mm. um it's it's a film that will stay with me for a long time and the, the acting is terrific and darcy what do you think I really liked it as well. Uh, I mean, I'm really excited about this director's career. Uh, she's actually the daughter of Indonesia's most famous filmmaker, Karin Nagorho. And she's made four feature films to date. Um, each one has been in a different language. I mean, Indonesia has many, many languages. Uh, and uh, she shoots in languages that she doesn't speak. But, I mean, she finds these stories that, you know, they come from history or, you know, she finds these communities that... Uh, you know, people outside don't really know about, and she creates these really engaging stories that are both universal but then really specific in an interesting way. Okay, so that was Before, Now and Then, or Nana, and that is where we're going to have to leave it for today's uh, movie spotlight. Jason, Darcy, thank you as always for your considered thoughts, and we'll see you next time. Yes, take care. Have a great weekend. We wrap up the show now by looking ahead to what's happening next week in our segment Next Week from Seoul. And providing us with the preview is our staff editor, Richard Larkin, who's here with us now in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what's the first thing we should look out for next week? The government plans to release a detailed explanation of the criteria for adjusting its COVID-19 indoor mask mandate by Friday of next week. Health Minister Joe Gyu Hong revealed earlier this week that the government will make preparations to improve people's everyday life amid the pandemic. Health authorities held a debate this week to gather expert opinions on the matter. Initially, it was reported that the mandate would not be lifted until March of next year, but it is possible that this date can now be as early as next month. Even if the indoor mask mandate is lifted, it is expected that masks will be required to be worn in some facilities, such as nursing homes, hospitals and public transportation. Right, so pressure has been building for the government to ease the mask rules, and it looks like the government is now responding. Uh, we'll get a clearer picture of the situation next Friday then. OK, so what's the next thing we should look out for? Two festivals will come to Guanghamun Square, Seoul, next week, lighting up the area for the holiday season. Seoul Light Ganghua and Seoul Lantern Festival will simultaneously run from next Monday until the end of the year. Every day at the beginning of each hour between 6pm and 10pm, an hour-long media art show will be performed. It will utilise landmark buildings along the square. There will also be an outdoor market with around 50 stalls, selling Christmas ornaments, handicraft products and winter snacks. A 12-metre tall Christmas tree will greet visitors. The city said it will conduct prior safety inspections to combat overcrowding and come up with safety maintenance guidelines for the duration of the festivals. Right, and the uh, Seoul Plaza Ice Rink will be open from next Wednesday as well, I believe, which is nearby, so it seems uh, this area will be the place to be for the upcoming Christmas period. Uh, and let's uh, move on to our final topic for next week. What is the last thing we should keep an eye out for? Well, we are reaching the end of the 2022 World Cup and with only one game remaining. Yes. Defending champions France will take on Argentina at the Lucille Stadium on Sunday at 6pm, local time in Qatar. It will be France's fourth World Cup final in the last seven, and they are hoping to become the first team in 60 years to consecutively win the trophy following Brazil in 1962. This will also be a huge showdown between Paris Saint-Germain teammates Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappe. 
particularly for Messi, as the 35-year-old forward has said that this will be his last World Cup game of his career. Argentina's captain has four Champions Leagues to his name, 11 league titles, and has won the Copa America with the South American side in 2021. Will he be able to round off an impressive career by winning football's biggest trophy? Yes, and cement his status as the GOAT, the <laughs> greatest of all time. Indeed, all eyes will be on that final, which will take place Sunday midnight here in Korea. So that's midnight Sunday, crossing over to Monday. That's where we'll wrap it up for next week from Seoul. Richard, thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Career 24. As usual, we'll be back on Monday. So we hope you can join us again then to get your daily dose of career news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend. I've been your host, Kwon Jangwa, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>